Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to... And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. I'm Ryan McMahon, documentarian, podcaster, comedy person. Jesse Brown is away this week, and I will be your guest host. Joining me on the show today is Andre Demise, journalist, contributing editor at McLean's Magazine. Today on the show, we are going to talk about how the Parliament of Canada declared a climate emergency on Monday, but then on Tuesday they approved construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? June is National Indigenous History Month, and Canada is celebrating with American funding for Indigenous voices. Interesting indeed. And today we're going to talk about the perils of being the president of a history-making sports franchise while black. Andre, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Bobby Barbaric, Dovey Craigerson, Adam Reed, Dale Mark, Lisa Bergman, Chris Ferguson, Graham Gilchrist, and Corey Kaplan. My name is Corey Kaplan. I live in Toronto and I work in the kids' animation business. I support Canada Land because it is a consistently straight shot of critical, nonpartisan journalism that holds corporate media right-wing misinformers, and political powers that be to account, and isn't afraid to ask the tough questions about vital Canadian issues. 
This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Endy. Endy offers a 100-night free trial with free returns so you can test your mattress in the comfort of your home instead of a big box showroom floor. The return process during the 100-night trial is super simple. If you don't absolutely love it, they come pick it up from you and give you a full refund, no questions asked. With free shipping to every Canadian province in a box the size of a hockey bag, Andy is Canada's best-selling mattress with the highest rate of customer satisfaction and the lowest rate of returns. Andy also gives customers the opportunity to touch, feel, and try the mattress Canadians are falling in love with in select showroom partner locations across the country. When mattresses are returned, which doesn't happen often, Andy works with local charities and furniture banks to donate the new and gently used mattresses to Canadians in need. You can visit andy.ca and enter the promo code CANADALAND for $50 off any Andy mattress. That's andy.ca, promo code CANADALAND. Do I understand correctly, judging by your Twitter feed, that you were in a plane flying over the ocean when the Raptors won the NBA championship? (laughs) Not quite. I was in a plane flying over the ocean the third game that they won. I was actually uh, on a flight to Italy. And I, I was bugging the air crew asking like, hey, listen, if you get any updates, could you please just let me know? <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until last week when they went back to Oracle Arena uh, in Oakland. You know, the tip off time was like three o'clock in the morning. Oh. It was just so late. And I, yeah, I stayed up watching it on, on NBA League Pass. So, yeah, I got to watch the game as it was, you know, like that last 900 milliseconds, like stretched off forever. I think it took like half an hour yeah. for the clock to go from like nine seconds to zero. So, yeah, I, I sat through all of that, fighting myself to stay awake, and the Raptors won an NBA championship, which I was so ticked off about that I was overseas and I couldn't be there for it. So, yeah, I, I tried to keep up as much as I could with what was happening after that. And to the extent that I could watch the parade through other people's you know, Twitter and Periscope videos, I was able to do that. Yeah. But the thing that really cast a pall over the, the championship for me was a story that emerged not very long after they hosted the trophy over their heads, which was that Masai Ujiri was involved in an altercation with a police officer. Mm-hmm. And the way the story got reported, I first saw it in the Globe and Mail, so I immediately got pissed off at the Globe and Mail for the way that it was reported. But it, it was a Canadian press wire that went out to basically every major publication. And the the headline said that Masai Ujiri was accused of assaulting a police officer. And the story goes, and I'm pretty sure people know it by now, that uh, you know, on his way to the hardwood after the uh, the Raptors uh, won the final game, um, he was stopped by a police officer. They had an altercation, and there was some pushing and shoving involved. Now, the way that it was originally reported is to say that uh, you know uh, he was asked for his credentials, and then he shoved the officer twice. And the second time that he shoved the officer, he struck the officer in the jaw. Except some videos emerged very quickly thereafter. One of them showing, you know, Ujiri sort of being pulled away from the officer and the officer's like charging at him, like being restrained by people. Like this guy was just like aggroed up. You know, I don't know when was the last time that you saw a club fight, but it was just one of those where like the bouncer's like trying to hold somebody back. That's what it reminded you know, me uh, of. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ujiri was like being dragged away. And finally, Cal Lowry saw what was going on. I'm not even sure how he saw it, but he runs over and he grabs Ujiri by the arm and he pulls him out of that altercation. And so... um you know, there was a fan that was sitting by the sidelines and he happened to see it and he explained that both he, he tweeted about it and then he explained to a TV news station afterwards that, yeah, the cops seemed to be getting very aggro. He did stop Masai, physically restrained him, 
and asked for the credential. And as Messiah was like, he had it in his hand. And as he was trying to show it to him, the cop sort of shoved him and the Messiah shoved him back. So from the way that it was described by witnesses, because there was more than one, there was a, a guy who I guess owns like a, uh, a jewelry business and he was down by the front court as well. But uh, from the way it was described, it was that the officer was being fairly aggressive. And then, you know, when, when a jury was had hands put on him, he sort of pushed back. Which is like, so what does that mean? Like, is, it not, is a police officer just allowed to like, you know, assault you? Are you supposed to just not stop yourself from being restrained or assaulted when you're just trying to get onto the basketball court like you're allowed to do as a president of a basketball franchise? So I, I wrote in McLean's that this was basically racial profiling. You know, I spoke to Leo Rottens, who uh, Leo is uh, one of the announcers at, uh, at TSN yeah. for, the, uh, for the Raptors games. Yeah. And he said that he, you know, when the game was over, he breezed right by security and got on the court. Nobody stopped him. And he was saying, like, there was a whole lot of people that were uh, that were with Ujiri and they were getting onto the court, too. But, you know, the six foot something odd black dude with a suit on that's being escorted in by security, he happens to be the guy that the police officer stops. And the thing that I can't understand, like, why can't people get this? This will always happen because I think people have the impression that when black people are able to exercise a certain amount of power, like when we get our university degrees or we get like a, a, you know, a job that lands us, you know, in a suit and tie, if we have a gig that has us work at a desk, we drive a nice car that, you know, we're eventually able to like, and excuse the phraseology, but I can't really come up with another way to say this. We, we detach ourselves from niggerdom. Like the more credentials we have and the more money we have and the more respect we have, then we're not going to be treated like one of those people. Right. So people expect that a guy like Messiah Ujiri is going to be treated with respect. And what I'm trying to say is no, police officers and authority figures will try to flex on you. Like they'll try to remind you that it doesn't matter how high you climb on this earth. It doesn't matter like what heights you get to. I'm going to remind you exactly where you belong and you belong underneath my boot. Mm. So if this officer sees a bunch of people coming onto the court, but he decides to stop Masai, like it's not just the fact that he's a white officer and Masai is a black man. It's not just the white on black interaction. It's the fact that the officer can exercise power over him and chose to do so in that moment. And it happens so often that I, I don't know how I'm not supposed to take it like this was actual racial profiling because it happens so frequently. And I'm just sick and tired of having to like relitigate this every single time an event like this happens because you always have to start from zero. You know, every time that one issue gets settled where somebody gets profiled or somebody gets assaulted by an officer or somebody gets killed by an officer, then the next time it happens, you have to start over from zero and convince white people all over again that, yes, this does have something to do with race. I'm fucking sick of it. And I frankly, like, I'm just, I'm not interested in doing it anymore. I'm not. If anybody wants to have a conversation with me about, well, why do you think it was racially profiling? My answer is, well, why do you think it wasn't? Like, I, I, I'm not interested in justifying it anymore. Andre, I don't know about you these days, but for me, cash rules everything around me. And these days in Indian country, there seems to be a lot of it falling from the sky, sort of. It was announced at the North American Journalists Association, AGM, just last week that the New York Times is actively and aggressively seeking pitches from indigenous writers, which frankly feels weird. At the height of Standing Rock, back just a couple of years ago, I was told to spread the word that the New York Times wanted pitches from Indian country, and there was a small handful of us that did indeed pitch, but we were all rejected on mass. So why do you think it is now that the New York Times is slumming it in Indian country when we've been ignored after all these years? I will say that it's a lot 
more than Canada seems to be doing at the moment. I'll tell you what, with the New York Times, the general impression that I get is they know they're out of touch. Like they know that uh, as far as what they cover for the average American and also for the average American that, you know, may not necessarily be a New York Times subscriber, there's a hell of a lot that they miss, which is going to happen when it comes to covering large regional, national, international stories and so on. But I, I think that one of the most overlooked socio-political tracks, as far as news gathering goes, has been indigenous stories. So, you know, I'm not sure exactly who sent the memo down the pipeline, but it kind of occurs to me that this is happening pretty late in the game. Um, I think what did happen was that, uh, you know, during the Standing Rock protests, a lot of news organizations got caught with their pants down. Either they weren't covering the story or they were pretty much parroting the U.S. government's uh, lines uh, and they were parroting uh, lines from oil interests. They weren't actually getting news and information from people on the ground from surrounding communities. They weren't getting information from uh, communities that did show up in solidarity. And I think Twitter scooped a lot of them. So on the one hand, I'm like, hey, this is great. I'm, I'm really happy to see that they're you know soliciting more stories from more communities because the more information you gather and the more communities you serve, it's the better. But the cynical side of me is saying they just don't want to get embarrassed again. Yeah, there was a point in Standing Rock where I think it was Mark Trehant, who's um, just an absolute killer voice in Indian country in the United States, who said Indian country and independent indigenous media in the U.S. had scooped every major news outlet in America by about two years by the time, you know, the Washington Post and others started to actually cover Standing Rock. And you just had, I, I mean, I agree with what you've said here is that, you know, they, they definitely get caught with their pants down when it comes to flashpoints. But do you think it might be even a little bit more than that? Do you think that maybe they're seeing the amount of clicks that Indigenous stories and op-eds get up here in Canada and they go, hey, we're trying to push into Canada. Maybe we need some of those clicks. Yes, to the extent that they're interested in the Canadian readership, which they have been pursuing fairly aggressively. I think there's also, you know, aside from APTN, like it is really hard to get news from Indigenous sources in Canada. Like if you look towards mainstream publications, and I'll even throw mine into the mix, uh, you know, working from Claims Magazine, it is really hard to get to the bottom of stories. And Again, like I'm trying super hard not to be cynical here, and I think I'm just DNA incompatible with it. Like, yeah, there obviously is a market for it. At the same time, you know, I I don't know that there's ever been a time where I've trusted the New York Times to push into certain areas of news. For example, like they uh, went on a hiring spree for black writers, uh, black columnists, and so forth. Uh, one of the latest uh, hires that they picked up was Jamel Bowie from Slate Magazine. Hmm. And so you'd figure that, you know, Jamel's influence, or at least bringing what he has to bear in the national conversation, especially where it comes to U.S. history and race, that they would, I don't know, begin to like tilt towards the news information and perspective that he brings. But then every so often, you know, you'll see like a Brett Stevens article comes out, which just blows up the entire thing, you know, all over again. You know, or uh, they'll they'll have like Ross Douthat, Douthat, Doubt, Douthat, whatever. Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. <laughs> I just I never cared to learn. But <laughs> you know, he'll he'll uh, publish something inflammatory that you know slides them all the way back to square one. So, given their track record as far as opinion goes, I'm a little bit wary of it, to be perfectly honest. But you know, as far as news gathering goes, there there probably isn't a news organization I would say like in the, in the entire world. That's better at covering stories, uh, getting scoops, 
and you know providing down the middle information i think the new york times is, is excellent at that so i am going to try and hold out a little hope i do hold out a little hope that their canadian expansion they are thinking of you know indigenous groups in canada that uh, they're, they're looking for a market that that could be well served by on the ground reporting i just I'll, i'm gonna wait and see that's all i'm gonna say about that yeah you know the skeptical hippo that sits on my shoulder goes um hey man they just you know they see they see the odd Globe and Mail op-ed go viral. They see pieces by writers like Chelsea Vowell or Robert Jago or, or others, you know, get uh, thousands of shares and then they go, hey, we need some of that. But then, you know, maybe, uh, as you say, their line of thinking is that, you know, if we're going to make a play into Canada, Indigenous voices need to be present. I wonder how those Indigenous voices will be supported by editors inside the New York Times. You know, just having traveled in the United States, I mean, Indigenous people in the U.S., Native America is virtually invisible. I mean, we are, you know, less than 1% of the population in the United States. And so I wonder how newsrooms and editors are going to deal with Indigenous writers that have perhaps politics that that don't really fly inside of the circles that these editors run in. And so you foresee challenges in that regard for writers and in the way their their views or their opinions might rub up against uh, editors and, and the actual New York Times itself? I can only speak to my own experience. Like I haven't been published in the New York Times before, but I will say that I have been published in The Guardian. I've been published in The Washington Post, etc. I will say that sometimes you will run up against, I don't necessarily call it cultural issues, but, you know, misunderstandings or assumptions that may not necessarily be true. I haven't had any like, you know, egregious experiences where I would never write for a publication again. But yeah, you are going to run into to cultural issues. You know, Americans, I think, have a tendency to transpose their own knowledge of issues onto Canada. Like I, I remember talking with one editor and as we were corresponding, uh, she kept on saying African-American, African-American. I'm like, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Do you mean black Canadians? She says, oh, does, is that is that how you refer to yourselves up there? <laughs> yeah, that's, but, but it's those small things where it's just like, you've never spoken to a black person up here. So of course, yeah. But then the other, the other piece is I have noticed that they are paying more. Like I'm seeing, cause I recently took out a subscription. I, I felt like I had to, if I wanted to be able to keep up with what's really happening. And I have seen more coverage of indigenous issues. Uh, when the um, final report on missing and murdered indigenous women was released, it was, I don't know if it was front page on the newspaper, but it was on the front page of the website. Like I didn't have to click through anything to get to it. Right. There was a story a little while back, which was a little bit heartbreaking. It talks about what role Canada has as far as uh, violence against indigenous women. Like how, how is the, uh, the country responsible for it and what responsibility have we yet to take? And, you know, it was a pretty, like, heart-wrenching piece that, that came out of Winnipeg. Yeah. So I know that they are paying more attention to it, and it seems like they are working with people actually in the uh, the cities where these issues are being covered, which is great because what will normally happen, at least for international publications, is that, you know, some editor from the U.S. or from overseas will get in contact with somebody that they happen to know that might have covered these issues in Canada, it yeah. doesn't necessarily even have to be an indigenous person. Yeah. It's often white writers. Yeah. Um, and so they're basically reporting second and third hand information back to, a, you know, a publication that's not even in this country and completely get it wrong. So I will say that I trust the New York Times to get it right more so than other publications. Very interesting. There's another announcement this past week that showed another major 
U.S. media conglomerate investing in Indian country, which I have to say, it feels like Ashton Kutcher is going to jump out of a cake at any moment. <laughs> you know, like it just when when good things happen to <laughs> indigenous folks in Canada, I have to say, I mean, much like when Trudeau was elected, I felt like we were getting punked a little bit and it turns out we kind of were. Yeah, it kind of did happen. But uh, Netflix... Yeah. Netflix has announced um, a $25 million market development fund, and much of that uh, support is starting to fall into uh, Indian country at this past year's Banff Media Film and TV Festival. They announced a partnership with Imaginative, the Indigenous Screen Office, and Wapakoni Mobile, three separate Indigenous uh, film and media organizations, uh, prominent organizations here in Canada. And a lot of that money is going into developing new voices, creating programs for emerging directors, producers, and writers. And they're using language that I want to talk about uh, with you a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're using the language of inclusion. Now, they fly 100 Indigenous creatives over to the Banff Festival under a thing called the Diversity of Voices Program, and it's meant to be an inclusion program. Is inclusion a bit of a trick word, and should we be going for inclusion, or should we be going for a seat at the table? Yeah... I will say that I trust this one more so than the New York Times expansion because it's it's an agreement with the Indigenous Screen Office and that's that's run by Jesse Wente. Yeah. And I happen to like and trust Jesse like just implicitly. He's he's just a, a good dude. Yeah. So I would I would actually be shocked if you saw any degree of like tokenism because he's just not the kind of person that really stands for that. That being said, yeah, whenever I hear the words diversity and inclusion, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up to the extent that I still have any even <laughs> left. Um, and here's why. When we hear the word inclusion, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be creative control or power exercise. Inclusion just means you get to be here. And I think the representation conversation was a good one to have maybe five, possibly 10 years ago. Yeah. But I think where we're at now is... You know, content developers and creators need to be able to simply hand over the reins to people who know how to tell their own stories. So I, I'm glad to see that, you know, there is a financial investment happening here. And I'm glad that, you know, they seem to be putting Indigenous creators first and foremost, rather than, you know, hiring the same old companies and then sort of clasping their hands together in prayer that they will actually find, you know, Indigenous creators behind the camera. That's been the story, especially in Canadian media, for as long as I can possibly remember, which is... Every organization getting together on a year-to-year -year basis, you know, wringing their hands on a panel made of all white people and saying, yeah, we absolutely have to do better. What is it we can possibly do? And then, <laughs> and then calling up black and indigenous creatives and inviting them to the event so maybe they can get up on the panel too and then just, you know, point all cameras and microphones and fingers in the direction and say, well, well, what can we do better? Yeah. And they never get past the whole, what can we do? So it seems like there is actually some action being taken here. So this one, I'm a little bit more optimistic about. I will say though that, and this is hard for me to say, I've just been noticing in the last probably two years that Netflix is starting to become a bit of a content ghetto. Yeah. You know, a lot of the, uh, the, the AAA studio material is being yanked. Uh, Disney is gradually withdrawing their material because it seems like they're gearing themselves up for their own streaming service. I'm noticing that the amount of money that Netflix has to pay to, you know, to carry, uh, you know, syndicated episodes of old TV shows, it's just becoming too much. So they're letting that go too. So you sign into Netflix and then you just start scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. You can hardly find anything that you want to watch. So what kind of worries me is the idea that you're bringing in like fresh, new informative content onto a platform that is gradually losing its value. 
Yeah, you know, I have to tiptoe here because, you know, so many young indigenous people jump at these opportunities because it's a door. It's a doorway to walk through and 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 we get tricked, right? We're hungry, we're not starving, but when we see the carrot, man, we go for that carrot and we're we're happy for it. And sounds like our communities have something in common. Oh, no, absolutely. And this is kind of more the point is like, you know, if we stop eating the carrots, and even just take pause and come together as racialized communities and as, as communities that represent diverse stories. I mean, if we were ever able to take the pause and look around and see what each other is doing, we might not need to eat those carrots. And, and you know, the real son of a bitch about this whole thing is, is you get included, you get sent there, but you don't actually get meetings with Netflix itself. <laughs> so, you know, I got mm-hmm. invited. I said, yeah. uh, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll consider it, but I want meetings with Netflix and Amazon and HBO or Showtime. I don't want to sit there and watch them talk about me. I want to be in the room pitching to them. And, uh, so far those doors aren't open for us. This episode is sponsored by better help. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. Andre, as a former Canada Land podcaster and someone that listens to every episode of the show because of your undying love for Jesse Brown. My undying love and loyalty for Jesse Brown, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> you must know that on this show they do something called Duly Noted. Mm-hmm. Do you have something to duly note? As a matter of fact, yeah, I do. Uh, I made a joke and I said, you know, I might fuck around and exercise my Ghanaian right of return. The country of Ghana has actually been working on this for decades uh, that uh, they, you know, make it OK that if you're from the Caribbean or you're from the United States, et cetera, like if you're ostensibly a descendant of enslaved people, 
then you can go to Ghana and stay for as long as you'd like. But they've been making moves over the last few years. I mean, it went from being able to have an indefinite stay to being able to be nationalized to like there's in 2019, they announced the year of return where they, you know, are having this like this huge promotion, this national promotion to say like, hey, listen, like all of you who don't know your ancestry don't know exactly where you come from because it was lost in the middle passage. We encourage you to come on home. Like we welcome you back. So I just made a joke on Twitter saying like, you know, I might mess around and exercise my right of return. And then I thought to myself, like, has anyone actually covered this? Hmm. And I had a look and considering that, you know, this is the international decade of of people of African descent. I thought it might have been covered in mainstream news and it it wasn't, I didn't see it anywhere. I searched, you know, I looked for, I mean, I might be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm not, you know, I searched multiple Canadian publications and it's, kind of strange to me because, you know, it's hard for me to compare this to Israel, but I think this is probably the only real comparison I can make here, which is where like, you know, dispersed diasporic people have a place that they can call home at which they're welcome. So, you know, that is despite the dispute with Palestinians, etc., we can at least be assured that there is a place that exists that is somewhat of an ethnic state that exists that Jewish people are welcome to come back to. And that's something that was widely reported. So it was just kind of strange to me that nobody picked up or clued in that, yeah, Ghana is like calling everybody home this year. If you were a a black Canadian, you know, and if if you're of Caribbean descent like myself, you'd have no way of knowing that. Even if you're like, you know, a descendant of, you know, people who are British loyalists during the, the American Revolution and you ended up in, say, like Halifax or you ended up on the prairie somewhere. Yeah, you're welcome to go back too. But no one's talked about that. That actually has a significant impact on black Canadians. So it was kind of strange to me that no one brought that to our attention. So I hope that that's something that we can, you know, uh, look up and pay some attention to that, uh, you know, black Canadians, if, if you feel like you want to go back and find your ancestral roots in Ghana, you're quite welcome to do so and stay as long as you want. Duly noted. I'm going to duly note that it is an election year and this election seems to be as they all are the most important election of our days ever the most depressing election (laughs) of our days yeah in 2019 the most important election (laughs) ever faces canadian voters and thank goodness that uh there's a website called diversityvotes.ca andrew griffith who is a former director general with the immigration department here in canada has partnered with a firm Mm. that is going to monitor and translate stories from more than 800 in air quotes, ethnic media outlets to create a single website for Canadians of diverse communities to take the temperature of the, uh, of the Canadian election and kind of figure out what people are saying across the country. And, um, I'm going to keep my eye on this tool only because I think that it is an important election. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on indigenous people to vote as there was in 2015. The rock, the indigenous vote campaign is in full swing. <sighs> it will be traveling yeah. across the country in uh, broken down yeah. pickup trucks <laughs> uh, all across Indian country through the summer yeah. and beyond. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to think about diversityvotes.ca, but I wanted to duly note it because rock, the indigenous vote is in full swing and this is something to keep an eye on just in terms of seeing what people from these diverse communities are saying about the 2019 fall election. I got a question, man. And this is like, I mean, now, you know, since I'm in a conversation with you, we can talk about this. But like, what political party do you, f- I'm not asking you to endorse 
anybody. <laughs> but I'm just looking at no, I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at the conservatives, which is just like okay, it's a big red X there. I'm looking at the liberals who you know just speak out of both sides of their mouths. I'm looking at the NDP, which is like floating in a harbor somewhere, and the Green Party, which is led by a leader that I think is absolute batshit and doesn't know how to have conversations with people from communities that aren't white suburban. So who's who's left? Yeah, I know. I got duped in 2015, uh, <laughs> and, and I feel like <laughs> as as did most of us. As did most of us. It's all good. And I feel like it, that's the inevitable result of the fall election in 2019. And you know, maybe um, maybe just to get out of it. I know you and I have talked very briefly about going moose hunting. Maybe that's when we go. Then we don't have to deal with it. Yeah, you know what? That is an excellent idea. As a matter of fact, when you want to go moose hunting, I am completely game. We'll just go. We'll go on e day. How about that? All right, for all Canadians listening to this, rather than vote, you come to my moose hunting camp and uh, come and hang out with Andre and I. <laughs> Duly noted. Andre, did you see that the Canadian Association of Journalists put out a response today about the climate crisis action plan and the way Canadian news orgs cover the climate crisis? Oh, God. No, I didn't hear about this. But listen, man, I have been trying to like just decompress and get away from everything depressing that's happening in Canada (laughs) while I'm overseas. And y'all just keep sucking me back in. So no, I missed this. But please, regale me. Just give me a reason to be depressed as I go out tonight so I can cry into my freaking my prog beer. Go ahead. Do that. All right. Well... (laughs) I guess I I should have figured that you were overseas for a reason to escape all of this shit. But as you know, our government uh, bought a pipeline and yesterday approved the pipeline. And the Canadian Association of Journalists is calling on Canadian news orgs to do a better job in the way they frame this conversation and to do a more succinct job in the way they, they cover the crisis emergency. And um, in an open letter published by the former CAJ Vice President, Sean Holman called on several journalism associations, news editors, publishers. Uh, he called them to task for inadequately responding to the global climate emergency. And, mm-hmm. you know, CAJ putting out um, an ethics guideline for journalists to follow as it pertains to the climate emergency, I think is, is interesting and is of, of note. The amount of coverage that I've seen in Canadian media for a country that relies as heavily on natural resources as it does and is, is as vulnerable to climate disaster as it is, maybe not necessarily like climate disaster will like wipe us out, but it can drastically change our ecosystem and it can drastically change our ability to, for example, like provide uh, essential services and uh, keep the uh, the distribution of food up and running. It's been a complete joke to watch anything having to do with the environment, especially in the, like the last five years in this country. Mm. Like every time that, you know, a body of scientists or climatologists says that, yeah, we're actually in the middle of an extinction phase or, yeah, you know, if we don't get our act together in the next 10 years, we might meet a point of no return. And everyone's just like, yeah. And you have to look for these articles. It, it doesn't run, you know, top of line. When you let's say uh, turn on like a uh, your your CTV news or your your nationalist or any basically like any any sort of like a news magazine show, you don't see it uh, you know above the fold in newspapers, and it rarely ever makes the covers of magazines, even the one that I work for. So would I say that the journalism industry has been negligent in how it, it has conversations about you know the, the pending climate disaster? Yes, absolutely, and. 
I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that a lot of that has to do with the amount of money that is tied up in natural resources, tied up in oil interests, tied up in mining interests. Like the amount of power that they're able to exercise over journalism in this country ought to be embarrassing, but it's not something that we have much of a conversation about. Right. I really hope that that issue is a wake up call. Well, and, you know, the CAJ National Board has basically asked its ethics advisory committee to to make recommendations on how journalists can most responsibly report on climate change. And I think, you know, in the interim, I think everybody's kind of, they're coming up with their own ways of, of accurately talking about it and, and describing it and conveying the urgency. Yeah. But having, you know, having a single voice on how to cover it, I think is going to be very difficult. What strikes me as, as paramount about all of this is that, you know, communities in the North, Inuit communities that are seeing a rapid melting of the uh, polarized caps and a rapid change in, in water levels in their communities. I mean, these are the communities that have been for decades talking about the way that, you know, the, the ice is changing. And for me, what is paramount, regardless of, of what words we use and, and how we want to squabble over those words, I think listening to those on the, on the front lines of, of climate change would be a good place to start. And I don't know how many reporters we have you know, on the front lines of climate change, other than, you know, we're starting to see people like the Narwhal, the National Observer start to pop up and do better work as it pertains to covering these yeah. issues. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's just that when it comes to legacy media in this country, like it's, it's, you know, still this gigantic, it's this open question. And the fact that, you know, every headline about the climate emergency isn't described as a climate emergency, but climate change tells you, you know, where the problem starts. Like I'll, I'll say that, you know, when the, the Liberal Party with the support of the NDP passes a motion in Parliament declaring a climate emergency, and then the very next day, like the whitey four was even, I don't even know if it was 24 it hours, wasn't. but it declared that, uh, you know, <laughs> the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion has been approved. Like, how did every editor not want to just go back to their headlines on the climate change declaration and change the headline to LOL? Yeah. I just, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, um, these are the days of our lives. And I can tell you that, you know, just, just some of the uh, headlines, oil the wheels, read uh, the province, uh, Ottawa Sun coming down the pipe, cabinet okays TMX. I mean, these are headlines that I think people have been, editors and, and managing editors have been waiting to press publish on for a long time. And, you know, keep yeah. an eye on mainstream's coverage of, of the buy-in from First Nations communities, because this is... I mean, this is literally tearing apart indigenous communities. I mean, you do have some buy-in from some, definitely don't have buy-in from others, especially those on the coast and uh, near British Columbia. These are fascinating times and really complex times, and, and reporting on it is going to be very, very difficult. But um, we'll see. I think of one story that I saw, which was about the Coldwater Indian Band, and uh, they said, like, you're going to have to change the route for this pipeline because as the planning stands, the pipeline will head right through our only source of drinking water. And they don't know if the federal government intends to divert the pipeline so that if a spill happens, they don't lose their only source of potable water. So it's just I personally don't know how as Canadians that we can watch something like this happen where the federal government has announced its intention to just violate lands that do not belong to us because it's. We have a product that we want to get out to market as quickly as possible. There are other means we can get this product out to market. Perhaps we should look at ways that we stop this product getting out to market and look at viable alternative sources. But instead, we're just going to go ahead and buffalo through this plan and possibly screw up people's communities. I just, it, it boggles my mind. I, I can't conceptualize how, on the one hand, 
You talk about needing to, you know, reconcile with indigenous communities and promising to do so. And then also talking about, you know, how important it is to make sure that we, uh, you know, meet our, our climate targets, uh, that we change the way that we consume, we change the way that we live so that we do have an earth to gift to our children. And then after saying all that, be like, yeah, but the land that doesn't belong to us, we're just going to like build a pipeline to it and get this shit out to the ocean. Like, don't, don't worry about that part. I, I don't get that. And like a, like a girl guides bake sale, they say, oh, but if you buy these cookies, which will make you lazier and fatter than you want to be, all proceeds are going to something good. <laughs> That's the promise we have. All proceeds will go to something good. That's our Canada Land Shortcuts this week. Andre, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter because I'm always on these Twitter streets at Andre Demise, A-N-D-R-A-Y-D-O-M-I-S-E. If you had to hit me up on email for whatever reason, Andre, A-N-D-R-A-Y, at AndreDemise.com. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. And I'm your special guest host this week, Ryan McMahon. You can find me on Twitter at RM Comedy. You can find Canada Land at Canada Land. And Canada Land's website is CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was excellently produced by David Crosby. Canada Land's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what Canada Land does, please support them on Patreon at patreon.com slash Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.